I'm going to still miss things. So I like to have someone with a trained background also in the interview who will ask questions that I then hear and I think, oh, why didn't I think of that? That's a great question. I really want to know the universe of the people in the business and the documents. What paperwork is available? How are documents created? How do they flow? How is cash handled? You're listening to Sandy Boxerman, a white-collar attorney and founding member of the law firm Cape Sokols. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. And one of the goals of our firm as a criminal defense firm is to get cases eliminated or killed before they're brought. Because once a case is brought, it's much harder to dispose of. If you think the case is going to go to court and you want that person to perhaps be a witness, an expert witness, I'm really looking for a good communicator. In this episode, we discuss the definition of cash skimming, how cash skimmers are caught, how the IRS finds and prosecutes a cash lifestyle, and how a forensic examiner can market their services. He is a shareholder and one of the founding members of the law firm Cape Sokol. He chairs the White Collar Practice Group. He also does tax controversy in digital currency. He's located in St. Louis, Missouri. Sander Boxman, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. How did you get interested in law? I always thought law would be a, a possible profession. I had a grandfather who was an attorney, although he didn't really urge me to do it. But as I went through college, I kind of veered off into the business track. I was a business major with an accounting concentration. I thought I would go into public accounting. And then two things happened my junior year of college. I worked one summer for an accounting firm. And I went to Washington, D.C. And those two things together said that while I still like the accounting, I was watching a lot of lawyers in Washington, D.C. I wasn't sure what they were doing, but it seemed like they were having fun and doing interesting things. So I explored that and ended up going to law school. After going to law school, how did you go from there to help become the founding member of a law firm? Okay, well, there was a 13-year a time difference between those two events. I graduated law school in 1988. I went to work for a big St. Louis firm. In 1988, it had 50 lawyers. That was considered a big firm. Now that would be considered midsize. And I was in the litigation department and worked for a partner there who was a former United States attorney. And that's where I got exposure to the white collar criminal practice. I really liked it, but at a big firm, you don't get into court too often. So after three years there, I became a public defender in the city of St. Louis, where I tried a lot of criminal cases. And and after three years there, I went back into private practice, worked for a firm for seven years. And then four of us from that firm combined forces with four lawyers from another firm, and we formed Capes Sokol in 2001. So what prompted you to be in the white collar space and government investigations? It was a combination of things. I took a class in law school called the government lawyer. It was taught by an adjunct faculty member who was himself a government lawyer. He brought in a lot of guest speakers from government, but we covered white collar topics, including the sentencing guidelines, which were kind of brand new at that time. And then I went to Lewis and Rice and worked on some white collar cases with the uh, former U.S. attorney. And it was a great fit for me because I really did like criminal law. 
but with my business and accounting background, it made a lot of sense to focus on white collar cases. I could understand the accounting terms. Even to this day, when a when a client's talking to me about some kind of accounting matter, and I really want to understand the, the transaction, I say, okay, what are we debiting and what are we crediting? I still use it. So it was a good fit. It just made sense. And so you've been practicing in the white collar group for how long now? Pretty much since the beginning, since 1988, except for the three years where I was a public defender. They're really, that was more of what we call street crime. So, but other than that, my practice has been in white collar area with the, some tax concentration and more recently the digital currency. As part of the white collar group with your experience, I'm assuming that you represent both the victims and the defendant. Would that be fair to say in, in a lot of areas? Yes, that is correct. I'd say a little more often it's the defendant, but we, definitely represent victims as well. Now, the, we do a lot of tax work, so that involves the government being the victim. But for the more non-tax white collar, I mean, it really runs the gamut. We see a lot of mail fraud, wire fraud, which of course is a very, very general term. So much garden variety fraud can be prosecuted under the federal mail fraud and wire fraud statutes. But we do have a fair amount of experience with embezzling bookkeepers and um, partners who are taking more than their fair share out of the business or who are alleged to be doing that. So that's, uh, I, I can't make a general comment to say that that's what's going on more in society than, than anything else. I know in recent days and months and weeks, the government is targeting some of the fraud that is resulting from the pandemic relief programs. We haven't seen a lot of that in our practice, but I know some other lawyers are, are handling those cases. Uh, yeah, it's going to be around for a little while. I know when I was an agent about a year ago, it's been, oh, the pandemic's been gone for two years now. They were just starting to ramp up the whole prosecution, the PPP loans and the idle loans and all that type stuff. And at least based upon my experience, and I don't know how it was, but there's an infrastructure out there that's already in place to commit the fraud. It's just a matter of figuring out what the black swan event is. Because a lot of this money movement was through romance schemes, and I was scratching my head going, how to figure out how in the world, how do you groom somebody to be a victim of a romance scheme? Literally months before it happens, and then when it happens, all of a sudden, boom, they're now being the mule in order to move the money, which is to me is unbelievably, I don't know, it's it kind of ingenious in one way, but another way, I, I just don't... I guess my brain doesn't think that way. Usually I'm thinking, oh, I got to victimize you. Let me groom you and then do it. But no, they get them groomed. And then when something bad, you know, like, like this pandemic thing happened, within months or weeks, they're already being used as mules. I've, I've thought the same thing. It is hard to believe sometimes. Yeah. And it's it's very hard to go tell a guy, I'm sorry, that that, that pretty young lady of pictures you see right there is not going to show up and, you know, be your wife. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> she is not your girlfriend. Uh, matter of fact, if you look up that picture, probably other people's girlfriends too. So there you go. Probably a 52 year old guy in Kazakhstan. <laughs> it's not even a yeah, it's, pretty, girl, I, pretty woman at all. No, I understand that. But the picture they got is not the guy from, uh, from, uh, from anywhere. <laughs> no, no, no. I get that. That's for sure. That's, That's for, for sure. sure. Uh, so you represent defendants and victims of embezzlement. Let's talk about a little bit about, I know there's one type of embezzlement that's out there, and that is cash skimming. What is cash skimming? 
when I talk about cash skimming, I usually think of it in a non-embezzlement context, unless you want to consider tax cheating as embezzlement. As a tax practitioner, my default position when I hear the term cash skimming describes a person, generally the owner, of a cash intensive business and the prototypical business for that type of activity would be a restaurant who is taking money either out of the cash register or getting it and putting it in his or her pocket before it even hits the cash register and then is just spending it as his or her own and that cheats the government in two ways one is those gross receipts don't hit the books and don't get reported And then the payment from the business to the owner, depending upon the legal structure of the business, is often taxable income to the owner that's also not getting reported on that person's tax return. That's what I usually mean by the term cash skimming. Another variation would be if some employee of the business is taking the cash without the owner's knowledge, that you could also consider that cash skimming. That's just just outright theft, really, is what it is. It's a form of embezzlement. Right. So the cash skimming is typically the individual taking the cash before it even hits the books and records so no one knows about it. Or if it does hit the cash register, which would be like a really it's a, a cash register is a bookkeeping system because uh, it does have a checks and balances somehow, some way. If you do take it out somehow, some way, that registered tape has to be doctored or destroyed or something of that nature. Uh, in order to cover that person's tracks, because you know one of the things the auditors are going to look at is, or uh, an investigator is going to look at, is give me cash receipts, and that would be typically one of them. But many times it doesn't happen, you know, during that t- during those type of skimming operations, or if it does, it's kind of doctored or lo- conveniently lost, that type of thing. So regarding cash skimming, let's just talk that about that for a second. Let's start with the business owner, cash skimming. Mm-hmm. How are they usually caught? Because if you're taking, let's say you're taking a hundred dollars out a day or thousand dollars a day, whatever it is, how does someone start to become caught when it's just cash? But cash is kind of nameless, it's faceless. How does someone end up typically, you know, getting in trouble because of this? Well, there's a, a variety of ways. Uh, sometimes a disgruntled employee or former employee knows that it's going on and for some reason deems it to be in his or her interest or maybe just the right thing to do to alert law enforcement, typically the IRS. It could be a former spouse or an estranged spouse who turns the person into the IRS. So that's two ways there. Another way that it comes to light might be that the individual, the owner who's doing the cash skimming, may be selected for an audit maybe a random audit, or maybe there's something else on the person's tax return. And in the course of performing the audit, the IRS examiner sees a lot of bank deposits in the personal account that aren't explained by the reported sources of income, or sees that this uh, owner has bought a lot of expensive things that his or her reported income would suggest they can't afford. Um, So those those are some of the ways that it might come to light. Or or another way might be if the owner is flashing a lot of cash at a casino. You know, casinos turn in suspicious activity reports. Or the person deposits bank, and the bank turns in a suspicious activity 
activity report. I'm sure that as we're talking, I'm going to think of three or four more ways that it could come to light. It's just a variety of ways that the situation could come to the attention of the IRS for further investigation. When the IRS does come in and find an individual that's, let's just say it's, it's, it's one of your defendants, how does the IRS prove that this cash was actually income and not some type of return of capital or saved since their times of cutting grass in high school? You know, how do we know this cash is actually from income? But it's funny that you ask that because in asking the question, you identified some of the defenses that people raise. But in some types of cases, the IRS utilizes what's called an indirect method of proof. So I say indirect, that means there must be a direct method of proof. So the direct method of proof would be that the IRS has identified all these transactions that probably by check that someone was paid for doing services. The person who wrote the check says, yes, I compensated them for the work they did. And they can show that those checks never made their way onto the tax return. That's the direct method of proof. So the indirect methods would would come into play if you don't have something like that. And there's a couple of them that the IRS uses. There's something called the net worth method, something called the cash expenditures method, something called the bank deposits method. And sometimes the IRS combines these methods to try to prove that a defendant or someone under investigation received income that should have been reported on their tax return and was not. So let's take the net worth method. And this, this, these aren't used all that often because they're time consuming and they're very cumbersome. But the, the net worth method would say, okay, at a certain point in time, at the beginning of the tax year in question, what was the individual's net worth in terms of all the assets that they owned? Now let's look at the end of the year. And if their net worth has gone up um, significantly, we're going to start with the premise that that's because of taxable income that they received, unless we can identify certain non-taxable explanations for the increase in net worth. So certainly if, the, if they have the same assets, but the market value change, that would be a non-taxable explanation. But if absent something like that, I don't want to use the word presumption, but there's some evidentiary significance to the idea that this person had one car at the beginning of the year. Now they've got 10 cars. Well, unless they inherited money or some other explanation accounts for it, it must have been taxable income. Now, in your question, you identified, well, how do you know it's not just that they've been mowing grass and saving the money for years and years and years? And that is a type of defense. It's called the cash hoard defense, H-O-A-R-D. Someone's been hoarding cash. And, and, they, and they say, no, I didn't. It's not that I had unreported income in that year. It's I spent all this money that I've been making since I was 12. And it brings up interesting issues from the defense point of view in terms of when you're under investigation. Do you tell the agent about the possibility of a cash hoard? Because maybe they'll go and investigate it and find out that you never mowed a lawn in your life and that you're just lying. It's a lot of back and forth. That's a a way that they go about proving the case where they don't have the direct items or the specific items to show this is what you got and you didn't report it. And that method of proof, correct me if I'm wrong here, is tried and true all the way up to the Supreme Court saying, we agree that if you use this method of proof and this formula, then therefore it is good enough for us in court when it comes to proving beyond a reasonable doubt. 
That's correct with an important footnote. The, I, the Supreme Court, in, in at least one case, and I think more than one case, has said that that is an acceptable method, but they have issued warnings that it, it can be susceptible of abuse or susceptible of not being accurate. So the trial judge has to pay a lot of attention and make sure that the evidence that the government tries to bring in is admissible and that the defense has a full opportunity to explain how non-taxable items could have accounted for the cash expenditure or the increase in net worth. So yes, it's been approved, but with a lot of cautions that the Supreme Court has issued to the, the district judges who are trying these cases. We were talking about the spouse. I've had one or two where they get divorced and the wife comes in and goes, my husband's got owns this restaurant. And by the way, he's got a second set of books. Uh, the second set of books is in the false ceiling, you know, the drop down ceiling in the restaurants. It's in the drop down ceiling over his desk. And here's a copy of it. You know, and, it, and there it is. You know, it's just yep. uh, <laughs> the second set of books is right there. And the question, you got to scratch your head and you got to tell the attorney uh, who's representing her or tell her, listen, um, if you sign that tax return knowing that it's false, you probably have exposure here and we got to figure out how to handle this because um, both of you are probably guilty, uh, even though that one's doing the crime. Absolutely right. And something else uh, that the spouse who might be vengeful, let's say, um, sometimes forgets about is they're just so angry in a divorce. Sometimes they think, I'm going to turn my husband, usually is the husband, I'm going to turn my husband into law enforcement. They don't think that if the husband's in jail, they're going to have a harder time paying maintenance and child support. So sometimes, sometimes <laughs> if you're counseling the victim spouse, I say victim spouse, the wife, it, you sometimes say, are you sure this is the route you really want to go down for the reason that you just stated and then for the reason that I stated? Let's assume that it's the employee doing it. And in my opinion, when the employee is caught, the business owner typically calls one of three people. It's either their attorney, their CPA, or they call law enforcement. Most likely, they'll call the CPA or the attorney first if they're a victim of a cash skimming incident or what we call an embezzlement using cash. If you have someone that is calling you as an attorney who appears to be a victim of this type of embezzlement, what would be the first steps that you would help them walk through? Well, the very first thing I would do in that situation is if someone called me as a business owner and said, I think I'm getting skimmed out of a lot of cash or some amount of cash, is I'd bring them in for a really probing interview as to why they think that. What is What makes them think that? What is the evidence that they believe they have observed or uncovered that makes them think that and and go from there. Because I like to say that my white collar cases, everyone is the same and everyone is different. There are usually certain mm -hmm. patterns, but, but the way you handle a case really turns on the specifics of the case. You know, you, t you talk about going where the evidence leads you. You know, you don't really, at least I don't, have a set template that I follow for all the cases. So I think the most important thing to do is to do a, a really deep dive into why the client thinks this is happening. And then that will usually tell you, you know, where you should be going. But is there any other steps that you would take regarding, hey, you need to fire them? You need to, do you hire an investigator to look into how big and how deep it is? I mean, what other steps would you 
would you recommend to them? Along with the interview, and usually as part of the interview at our office, we have a retired IRS special agent who now is full-time for us as our forensic investigator. I like to have someone like that sit in on the initial interview because they ask, I mean, I like to think that after 30 years of experience, I ask good questions, but I'm going to still miss things. So I like to have someone with a trained background also in the interview who will ask questions that I then hear and I think, oh, why didn't I think of that? That's a great question. But beyond that, it really, as I said, it depends on the situation. I I don't think it would be the common practice to immediately fire the suspected person, although although sometimes that might be the right thing to do. You just you may or may not be able to prove that they've done it. But if you feel comfortable that that's the person doing it, you just kind of it's like cutting out the cancer and getting rid of it and at least stopping the bleeding. So that may be the answer. I think typically the next step in most cases would be really getting a handle on the books and records of the business. And then to the extent, you know, cash is often difficult to trace. To the extent the books and records of the business provide clues, you know, that's usually the next place to go. So if you, like in a restaurant, you might gather up all the checks from the diners, you know, when you get your check, that's what that kind of check is what I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. not the check that you write. And you might analyze those and compare them to the deposits. And at least that will tell you if, if it's done right. If there's a gap, what it may or may not do is lead you to the person who's doing it. But based on how the cash flows and the documents flow, you may be able to, to know. I think that's general. Even though I said I don't have a template, to the extent I do have a template, after that initial interview or as part of that, I really want to know the universe of the people in the business and the documents. What paperwork is available? How are documents created? How do they flow? How is cash handled? And to the extent, as I said, I think I'm repeating myself a little bit, but to the extent there is a paper trail, that would be the next thing to do is analyze it and really drill down and see if you can figure out where in the process it's happening, because that could help you zero in on who is responsible if it is happening. When you have these conversations, do you discuss the civil and criminal remedies for these type of things, or is that later on down the road? It usually comes up near the beginning. So we talk about to what extent civil suits are going to be successful sometimes. Now, sometimes what happens is that you can see, or the owner of the business sometimes sees that the employee is buying a lot of things. If you suspect or have a factual support for the proposition that the cash being taken out of the business is being used to fund all these expenditures, you might have a civil remedy to go into court and tie up their funds while it's sorted out. Because so many times the perpetrator of a fraud is getting all this money and by the time they're caught for some reason they don't have any money left so if you can get to it early you have a better chance of recovery so we talk about whether there are any immediate civil remedies we talk about what ultimate civil remedies might be and we do talk about whether it's appropriate to call in law enforcement and at what point that should be done i'm just thinking out loud here one of the questions i would have is in some cases the employee that embezzles or the cfo forget about the cash skimming for a second just embezzles in general okay the bigger scope of the bigger umbrella of just just taking money that's not yours uh defrauding your employer sometimes it's because 
they'd rationalize it, of course, right? The the person who's ta- who's taking the money. Sometimes it's the business owner that actually is crooked. So the employee decides, well, if he's crooked, why can't I be crooked? That type of thing. Do you yep. ever have these conversations with these victims? I'm not saying she, all victims are the same. It's that, listen, Mr. Business Owner, I need to know if you're guilty of this is too, because if you are going to go down this road, expect this person to point the finger at you too. It's, it may cause you more problems down the road. Do you have this type of conversations with them? Yes, indeed. It's it's In a way, it's not that different. I mean, the, the particulars are very different, but the concept is not that different from the situation you mentioned with the wife in the divorce who wants mm-hmm. to turn in her husband and you have to say, okay, but let's think about the implications on you for having signed those tax returns. Similarly, the business owner may come and say, I got this employee who's stealing from me, I think, and that's fine and you don't want to tolerate that. But if you do bring in law enforcement, they may go through all your books and they may find some things that you're doing and, and they may find themselves investigating the first kind of cash skim we talked about, which is the business owner taking money out and not paying taxes on it. So it's it's almost a be careful what you wish for. What do you recommend if a business is a victim of, let's say, a cash skimming operation or potentially could be a victim? What would you recommend to your clients for them not to be a victim? What steps would you take for them to kind of protect themselves? If I could only point to one thing, it would be the separation of functions that the auditors and the accountants like to talk about. I know it's a different context, but just as you, a business really shouldn't have the same person write the checks and reconcile the bank statements when they come in. Similarly, the same person shouldn't, who has access to the cash shouldn't be the one who controls all the documents, who can alter the customer checks or anything like that. Usually what I would do is bring in someone who has expertise at internal controls and things like that. But it would be separating the functions, having systems in place where discrepancies between the amount of cash that you think you're bringing in and the amount of cash that you're finally taking to the bank each day or each week. If you see discrepancies, you can note those early and figure them out before it becomes a multi-million dollar gap and fraud. You were talking recently about having a forensic examiner on staff. How does a forensic examiner come into play both civilly and criminally when it comes to solving these these problems? Well, we do a lot of criminal defense work and tax work. And if you're representing a a defendant or a potential defendant who's being investigated, one of the most effective tools that we have in our arsenal is what we call the parallel investigation. We try and figure out what the government's doing, what documents are they looking at, what witnesses are they talking to. And if you do that, you can sometimes figure out where you think the government is going, but you can also find weaknesses in the government's case. You can find gaps that they or may not recognize. And one of the goals of our firm as a criminal defense firm is to get cases eliminated or killed before they're brought. Because once a case is brought, it's much harder to dispose of. So if we can point out the weaknesses or alternative explanations or reasonable doubt, which is what we talk about as criminal lawyers all the time, that can be very effective. Can I answer it from the victim side, though? Is that okay if I keep going? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Please. All right. So because this happened, um, it was not my case. It was one of my colleagues whom you've had on this podcast, Michelle Schwerin. There was a client who 
was the victim of an embezzlement. It was a partner, a multi, multi-owner situation, and one of the partners was stealing from the business. The other partner, who became our client, discovered it. And so we had our forensic accountant. Remember, she's a retired IRS special agent. She put on her government hat and we said, okay, pretend you're working for the government again. Investigate this case. Look at the documents. And she did. And she put together a case and wrote a report just like she would have done if she was still working for the government and was the lead agent on the case. And we were able to take that to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And it was a very attractive and appealing case for them to prosecute because it was all done. It was you heard the expression, we're going to present the case to you all wrapped up in a bow. That's, I don't think we literally put a bow on it, but we could have. So that's, that's a one way on the victim side, when we represent the victim, that we can be of great service. And more importantly, the forensic investigator can be of huge service because you make the government's job easy. That person was prosecuted, the perpetrator, pled guilty. There's a restitution order in place. I don't know to what extent the restitution will be paid or not paid, but we were able to, to do that because we made good use of our forensic accountant and our former government agent. I'm assuming you had this uh, a forensic accountant somehow, some way you were using it before you, this person became on staff. Would that be correct? Well, she, uh, she was a, a government agent, so we had been on the other side of cases from her. Then she retired and wasn't sure what she wanted to do, and we stayed in touch, and one conversation led to another, and she started working for us. So that's one way. They, they work for the government, then they retire, and they don't want to sit around the house all day. They're so, they have such a good skill set. They're so valuable that we're delighted to use them. Did you have forensic accountants that you used before this person came on board to your firm? There's a lot out there. Many of them are really, really good. We find the right one for the right case, but there's a lot of retired agents. I shouldn't say a lot, but there's a number of retired agents. They're not always retired agents. Sometimes they're people who've been in public accounting, but they have the skill set. They usually have a, a firm, a forensic accounting firm, or they hang up their shingle. And we try to meet them. We are active in our local bar association as well as the national bar associations where the forensic accountants often come to participate and speak and exhibit. And there's quite a few that we know, and we have used them in cases as well. So when you do look for a forensic accountant or a forensic examiner, what are you looking for? Uh, it depends on the case, but if you think the case is going to go to court and you want that person to perhaps be a witness, an expert witness, I'm really looking for a good communicator. I'm, I'm jumping to this one because I think it's overlooked that there are forensic accountants out there with great technical skills, could trace a penny from where it first <laughs> got earned to where it ended up, but they may not be as adept at testifying, which is fine because oftentimes you have forensic accountants who you don't use as witnesses. If you're going to have a person who's going to be on the witness stand, I would sacrifice a little. Ideally, you'd like to have perfect forensic skills and perfect communication skills. I would sacrifice the forensic skills a little bit for the communication skills. If, on the other hand, you're, you're really envisioning the engagement as being one where they're assisting you in understanding the flow of funds or how events transpired or unfolded, and you don't really think they're, they're going to be a witness, then, of course, the technical skills become way more important. And I look for someone who has a 
just a tremendous attention to detail. To me, that's the most important thing. Secondarily, the communication is still important because even if they're not going to be testifying to a jury, they still have to explain things to you. So I want someone who can explain to me. I mean, I have some accounting and financial background, but I still am looking for someone who will explain things in more everyday language just because I think that's better communication. So those are the things I look for when figuring out who I'm going to work with in a particular case. It's interesting you say that about communication because I have interviewed four or five attorneys that are kind of like in the same industry you're in, like white collar, family law, that type of thing. And every single one of them have told me communication. Finding a forensic accountant is hard, but it's possible, but they can do the work behind the background, but finding one that will do the work in the background and be willing to testify about it is like a unicorn. It's just, they're out there. You just don't meet them every day or it's, I don't know how to explain this. It's almost like most CPAs or forensic accountants are like introverts and they light their computers and and spreadsheets. I'm raising my hand if people don't see me on the podcast and I like that type stuff. To me, the fun part, at least to me, the fun part is in court, you have to defend your position and have the numbers and be willing to think this thing through and think about the other side's going to say and all that great stuff. It's interesting you say that communication is number one. It's absolutely true. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that the fun part, you use the word fun, is defending your work in court and all that. There are many people who do not find that fun and that the challenge is is finding those who who do enjoy that and are not afraid of it. Well, the way I look at it, this is my baby and I want to sit there and be proud of my baby. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, if you call my baby ugly, I'm going to prove to you my baby's cute. I mean, that's just the way it works, right? I mean, sort of. I mean, you're not going to lie about I, it, of course. you got to be honest. But let's just if, – if we're going to go to court and this document's worth defending, well, let's, let, let's defend it and call our baby cute. I agree with you. Regarding credentials, we talked about communication. Are there any credentials that are like a – does it matter to you? Does it not matter? How do they play into your choice of choosing a forensic examiner? I think they are important, differentiating perhaps the courtroom person from someone whom you're not expecting to go to court. If you're going to present someone as an expert witness, it's not necessary that they have 83 sets of initials after their name, but they ought to, you know, the standard in court is that they are qualified by experience and or training to opine on subjects that are beyond the knowledge of the lay juror. So you want the jury to believe that this person meets those qualifications. So you know, I typically, I, I do think a CPA certification is something I look for. I can't say that if you don't have it, you're not in the ballgame. Of course, our forensic examiner, our, our former IRS agent, there are, of course, many IRS agents who do have the CPA. The one we have does not. I noticed as soon as I those words came out of my mouth that the CPA is important, I think, well, wait a minute, the, the one you like the best who's on staff doesn't have that. So, but she has that years and years and years of IRS experience working cases. So you can, I won't say that any one qualification or credential is a prerequisite, but you have to have the certification, the training and the experience or some healthy combination of those three. I would say that the CPA license, I'm sort of biased, but it kind of breaks down more barriers. 
Because if you have CPA license, everybody understands it and everybody has a trust factor with this and a comfort factor with CPA, even though it probably doesn't have much to do with forensic accounting in general. But just having those initials, everybody thinks that, oh, okay, you're certified. It kind of breaks down a lot of barriers and doors that you don't have to worry about if with the, with the CPA license. I, I just find it that way. I'm not sure other people look at it that way, but but having a CPA license, in my opinion, just just makes things smoother. I think that's right. I have a. If I can turn the tables, I I ha, I'd have a question for you. I, when I first started doing this, you know, CPA would be the credential that you would see. Now there's a lot of initials that people put after their names, CFE and CFP. And I can't even say what all of them are. CFF. I have the interest in CFF. Which, what, what, what's that one? It's the CPA's version of a, of a fraud examiner. Okay. Cause I've certified, fra- certified in financial forensics. That's what it is. Oh, there you go. You know, which of those you think are um, more valuable than the others? Perhaps I, I know many of them are, but sometimes I have trouble figuring out Okay, which of these are, you know, really mean something and which of them are maybe more window dressing? I can answer that real quick. CPA license is for the most part great, but it doesn't make you a great forensic examiner. It just doesn't because the test is not about forensic examinations. It has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with auditing and and I mean you got a very good grasp of accounting, and don't get me wrong, I think it's still mm-hmm. the best one to have, but a, a CPA is not a forensic examiner. They're just not. A CPA can become one, but they're just not. It just has the test has nothing to do with it, but people trust the CPA license. The CFE, Certified Fraud Examiner, is a little more detailed and narrowed for forensic accounting. But that too, in my opinion, just says you pass the test. It doesn't make you a good fraud examiner. It just means you pass the test. I personally believe that a good fraud examiner is someone who lives and breathes this stuff for 20 years. That's the good one. And like your your current colleague that you have that's that's hired by your firm to do this, she may not have all the degrees, but she knows her stuff because that's what she lived and breathed for 20 years. You know, and I understand courts won't you know, the initials and to be reimbursed for the rate and, you know, and, and to justify the expense for an examiner, it's a lot easier to have initials beside your name. But from a practical mm-hmm. standpoint, I would say the experience is number one. And But if someone says, do I get a CFP, CPA or CFE? I'd say get your CFE first because it's easier. You can get it done mm-hmm. within a couple months. But definitely get your CPA because it just it just makes life easier. When people say CCPA, the judges like it. Uh, the judges are now looking at CFEs a little better. But if you have the word CPA beside your name, it's like you're in. There's not much controversy of are you good or are you not good. You don't have to worry about selling you know, my skill set. They already believe the skill set when you come to the front door. So that's just my opinion on the matter. I appreciate the insight, and I hope you don't mind. I know you're supposed to be asking me questions. No, 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 no. It's all good, you know? It's all good. Anytime I make the the podcast toast, great. That's it. You know, make me look smart. I'm I'm more than happy to do it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So are there any resources that you use that helped you in your white-collar practice? First off, I would say the undergraduate accounting background that I had um, has been just immeasurable in terms of how valuable it is. There are lawyers who don't necessarily have an accounting background who can succeed in white collar defense, but I think it's I think it's challenging. There are 
CLE, uh, continuing legal education programs that you can use accounting for non-accountants or accounting for lawyers that can bring you up to speed. But for me, that accounting background has been really, really invaluable. Speaking of CLEs, the ABA, the American Bar Association, especially the tax section, but also the criminal section, they offer a lot of really good programs. There's a kind of a joke that the ABA White Collar Conference is a big, big gathering every year and it's finally resumed after being on hiatus for COVID. And there and there's some great parties that law firms throw and there's sort of a joke that you really go for the parties and the CLEs kind of secondary. There are, there are some great CLE programs. And I would say that in the ABA tax section, we have our parties too, but we take those education sessions really, really seriously. And they're, they're great resources, those ABA tax section programs and also the criminal programs. So I'd say those two things between the accounting background and the CLE programs, those are really good resources that help me out a lot. Just keeping up um, with magazine articles that come out. Believe it or not, Twitter, I, I follow a lot of people on Twitter and a certain percentage of it is junk. But if you wade through the junk, you can find people are posting value, very valuable articles that would not come to my attention otherwise. So social media has its ups and downs, but used properly, it can be very valuable. I can imagine if you rank the parties by the ABA, the personal injury has got to be the top. And then the second then the second tier is going to have to be the white collar. And the really, I would think that the lowest tier would have to be the tax controversy, tax accounting parties. I, I just, I don't know. I, I would just think that that would be the, that would be the lower tier and the personal injury would be the top tier. Am I wrong? <laughs> I don't know. I've, I never go to the personal injury function, so I don't know. Um, but you'd be surprised at how much fun the, ABA tax lawyers can be. <laughs> you know who throws good parties at the ABA White Collar Conference? Those are some of the big firms that uh, are trying to get the white collar lawyers to hire them to do forensic work. Oh, I wouldn't doubt that. So I, I guess let's just back up for a second. If I'm a forensic accountant out there in, in the podcast world, and I want to get lawyers' businesses, you know, like yourself or other people, what would you recommend? How would I start? Let's assume I got the I, credentials and I got the experience and I'm just, I'm an A-plus guy. You just don't know it yet. How do I get <laughs> How do I get myself in front of people to get those jobs? You meet as many as you can, but beyond that, you, you then have to go one-on-one. -on -one. So what I mean by that is, especially during the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, there are networking events, Zoom meetings where people kind of meet, but then you have to follow up and reach out to them and have conversations. I do think there's some value to going, for example, to the ABA tax section gatherings. There's three or four of those a year. And then besides the ABA, other groups sponsor gatherings. I mean, you could go you could go to a conference just about every week if you really wanted to. It's not just showing up it's not necessarily having an exhibitor's table, although although that can be helpful. It's it's then going out and socializing, having dinner or drinks, and just having the opportunity to speak one-on-one. -on -one. Just like you said, you're an A-plus guy, but how do people know it? Well, just by talking to you, you can tell that you speak the language, that you know what you're talking about. It's, it's time-consuming, but if you're that type of person that likes meeting other people, it's... It, it can be tiring, but very fun. So it's the same, it's the same way we lawyers try and get business and get, 
people to know us and refer us things. You just have to connect on a personal level and it's not enough just to show up at a function and hand out a business card. You really have to follow up in various ways. I would agree with you 100%. We haven't discussed this. This wasn't part of the cash skimming topic, but I've noticed, you know, I worked with the IRS for 20 years. You know, I, I knew prosecutors and defense attorneys and some defense attorneys were a little more friendly than others. And I was, you know, some of them just love to hang out with and some, and I say hang out with, I'm talking about, you know, the meeting, right? You have the meeting and, and you may have conversations in the courtroom and maybe in the hallway, but you kind of enjoy these people, but you understand we have a job to do, right? But right. at the end of the day, when you leave and you, you start your own private practice, I have noticed 100% it is all about the relationship. It's all about, I, I know, I've worked with you before and can you do this? Can you help me out? And mm-hmm. or somebody else has got a problem. I know the guy who can help you out. His name is so and so. It's all about the relationship. It's not about the direct marketing. It's not about the business card. It's not about the slick website. It's none of that stuff. It's all about just meeting the people and helping them with their needs. Really, is what it is. And you know, it's something else too. And th- frankly, the the uh, the rate, less uh, less people are as cheapest as possible. The rate is not really the issue. It's like, yeah, okay, you know, it's here. It, it's it's not. It's more like, uh, what can you do to help me and fix this problem? You know. Now, uh, of course, no, you can't be outrageous in your rates, but as long as you're reasonable, there's never, in my opinion, in my experience, there's never been any pushback. I agree with that. In fact, uh, in St. Louis, for whatever reason, our the legal market, the hourly rates, are generally somewhat and sometimes quite noticeably lower than in other markets. And we have had lawyers from out of town who have uh, referred us cases of them when they find out our rates. Sometimes they even say, you might want to raise these. People are going to wonder what's wrong with you if your rates are too low. And sometimes I think they're kidding, but I don't think they're always kidding. So you're, you're um, when someone's in a problem, in a situation where they have a problem and they need forensic accounting, it's usually a serious problem. And I had a law partner years and years ago. He was a politician. He was a statewide office holder who then back to practicing law. He, and he said, you don't shop brain surgery on price. And while what we do isn't brain surgery, sometimes it can be you know, life changing to some people. So as you say, you can't be outrageous about it. And sometimes money, you know, there are constraints on what people have to spend, but oftentimes the, the rate will not be an impediment to getting the business. No, when I go uh, to Chick Fil A and get my chicken sandwich, uh, I understand it's going to be a little, maybe a little bit more than you know the other restaurant. But I like the service. I like the what I'm getting. I know what I'm getting. I'm comfortable with what I'm getting, and then I go, I buy it. I mean, I just the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. Cost becomes less and less of a factor, especially on these big issues like cash. You know, we're talking about the criminal defense, and we're not talking about ten thousand dollars lost here. We're talking about hundred thousands. You know, some people maybe going to prison for years. At the end of the day, the government's going to take it in restitution order. I mean, you might as well go ahead and literally spend money and get yourself a good, good representation. Uh, because that's the, right. Because once the judge says million dollar restitution, well, guess what? Whatever you try to save on your attorney fees and forensic accounting fees, you just you're going to pay. Looking back on your career, what's your biggest mistake or lost opportunity? It probably would be not having worked as as a federal prosecutor right out of law school. There are so many white collar lawyers who have that credential, and there are many great ones who don't. But 
I think if I had it to do over again, I would have made an effort right out of law school to have worked in the Department of Justice or in a uh, as an as an assistant U.S. attorney in the local office. And I I can't be sure that I would have gotten those positions, but I would have tried. And that's something that um, I'd like to have back if I could. I would do that differently. I can understand the learning curve of what's important, what's not important, what buttons to push, what not, what buttons not to push. Those types of things are just invaluable, in my opinion. If you have, if you spent at least a couple of years in that in that type of office space, because you kind of mm-hmm. know the the processes and the stress levels and what they're looking at and that type of thing. When I was a special agent with the IRS, I always tell my other younger agents, be a manager. Even if you're a manager for a couple of weeks, you'll understand what they can do and can't do and what they should do and shouldn't do. It'll make you a better agent because you understand what your manager's thinking and how they're thinking. I think it's the same way with the you know prosecution. Get to have a little bit of insight what's behind the scenes. All right. You ready for the final four questions? I am. All right. Final four. Sandy, what is your biggest motivation now? You're now a uh, founding member of a, of a law firm. What is your biggest motivation now? It is to make sure that in everything I do and everything I say, I enhance the reputation of that law firm. We're very proud of it. We started out with nine lawyers in 2001. Now we have 30-something lawyers, and we, we're, we're well-known in town. We're well-known nationally, and I want to make sure that whatever I do um, contributes to maintaining and enhancing that reputation. What about personally? My personal motivation yeah. is to, it's to um, keep learning. Um, you know, we started this digital currency group in our firm not too long ago, and that's not something we set out to do. We happen to find ourselves with a couple clients in the space, and it made sense to do it. And rather than be afraid of something new, it's to to embrace it. So you have to be sort of, at least I do, have to be kind of selective. You can't try and learn everything about everything. It's just not time for that. But don't be afraid to dive into something new that kind of fits in with your skill set, but might be a little bit outside your comfort zone. I've noticed as I got older, I respect more and more the people who are just good at one thing or maybe good at a handful of things and that's it versus the lawyer who does the, oh, I do divorce work, estate work, <laughs> you know, DUIs, uh, criminal defense, tax and tax work. I don't know if I want that guy. But if one guy tells me I do DUIs only, well, that's the guy I'm going to, if I have a DUI, I'm not going to have one. But if I had one, that's the guy I want to go to, you know, the guy that yeah. really just knows one thing extremely, extremely well. What book or books have changed your life or thinking? I would say there's a set of biographies uh, by, about Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson. This, there's millions of biographies about him, but the one I'm talking about is written by a fellow named Robert Caro, C-A-R-O. And he's pretty much devoted his life to Lyndon Johnson since 1980 or so, which is when I read the first one. I think there's four or five of them out. I think he's working on the last one. And the reason why I mentioned these books in answer to your question is that Lyndon Johnson was such a complex person and he was so interested in having power. And, but he wasn't just as interested in getting power. He was interested in, in using it. In some ways, he used it in a very ugly fashion just to assert control and dominance over other people. But in other ways, 
having power was important to him because he wanted to use it to improve people's lives. And, and I say all this because he was just so incredibly complex. There was so much to admire and so much to, to not like in, in that man. That has really, I think, helped me approach people better, recognizing that I know it's, everyone knows that life is not black and white. There are shades of gray. But just studying this one person has really emphasized that for me and has influenced just kind of how I view the world. I don't know if it completely makes sense. It's just shaped the way I view other people and the world in general. Share something that you've purchased in the last 12 months, less than a hundred dollars that, that you enjoyed or made your job easier. If it's good enough for Sandy, it's good enough for the world. What, what would that be? It's not job related at all. It's a device that I think they call it an egg separator where you crack the egg and it separates the yolk from the egg white. And the reason is because I like to make homemade ice cream with my KitchenAid ice cream maker attachment, which I don't mind advertising for free because it's that good. And you have to separate, you have to separate the eggs. You just use the yolks. And I was really bad at it until I got this device. I still, sometimes the yolk still slips through and I have to use more than the eight eggs that the recipe calls for. But it's that egg, egg yolk, egg separator that has just made a huge difference to my ability to make ice cream. And for that, I will be eternally grateful. Fair enough. If you had to do something else, lost your law license today, what would you be doing? If you had asked me that when I was a lot younger, right out of law school, I would have probably answered some something political, a political consultant or a campaign operative, because I loved electoral politics. But today, electoral politics have gotten so ugly that I would have no interest in being in that field. So since you asked the question, um, as of today, I'd be doing one of two things. The first choice, if I could get such a job, would be working somehow in the front office of a minor league baseball team. I don't know what I would do. Heck, if they wanted me to cut the grass in the outfield, I'd probably be excited to do that. But if that's not possible, something in the cryptocurrency space, not necessarily working for a cryptocurrency company, but maybe cryptocurrency advocacy or a trade association or lobbying or something like that. There's some good organizations out there. And if they would, if they would have me, I would talk to them about that. Cool. Very cool. I did not get interested in cryptocurrency until about... Oh, about three or four years ago, it started becoming well more earlier than that. It was started becoming more of an more of an issue for the government to regulate and trace and da 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 all type stuff. But the government's uh, allowed me to kind of work on cryptocurrency, and I got to do that the last two years of my career, which is actually a lot of fun. It's just a new area. There's no hard and fast rules because it, the government's kind of making the rules up as they go along. And they're mm-hmm. just doing their best they can to to catch up, and it was kind of it was kind of interesting being in that space. My biggest re- regret on all that is I didn't invest earlier. Uh, oh, well, yeah. you you and everybody. Yeah, else. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know. It was it was three hundred dollars a a coin, Bitcoin, and people are like, "Man, that's just ridiculous." <laughs> I was I going know. through training, going, I, "Who's doing that?" And we had one guy going, oh, "I'll buy one," so he bought one just for kicks and giggles. Three hundred dollars, isn't it? What's now worth like fifty thousand? 40,000, uh-huh. something like that. Anyways. It's in right. that ballpark. To me, what's most interesting is the diverse range of people who are interested in cryptocurrency and the various reasons from some people who just find it, they like the technology. Others, 
think it's uh, an alternative. It's not that they're, there are some who are anarchists. They think, oh, this is going to get rid of governments, which is completely stupid in my opinion. I don't think that's going to happen, but it's a, it's a tool. And, you know, I've been reading a lot about on the one hand, can cryptocurrency help the Russians evade sanctions? And most serious people think that that's not the case. But there are stories I've been reading about cryptocurrency helping the Ukrainians fund their war effort more quickly and more efficiently than they might otherwise be able to. And, you know, whether that's true or not, I can't personally vouch for it, but I think it probably is. So that that to me is what I find fascinating, the wide range of, of people from Goldman Sachs trying to say that they're going to do a cryptocurrency of some kind to those people who think that Bitcoin is the beginning of the end of government. So, and everything in between. <laughs> well, Sandy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I do appreciate your time. And uh, thank you so much for what you're doing out there. And congratulations on f- being a founding member of a, of a great law firm. I know a couple of people that work for you guys or work with you guys. And they're very sharp people. And it's always a pleasure talking with them and being with them. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun.